Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She's a filmmaker best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. Mary Robertson is an Emmy Award-winning showrunner and director. Presently, she works as the showrunner of The New York Times Presents, the anthology documentary series from The New York Times, Left, Right, FX, and Hulu. Her most recent effort for the series is Framing Britney Spears, a critically lauded documentary directed by Samantha Stark that has broken rating records around the world and touched off a reckoning on Spears' treatment, misogyny, and tabloid culture. Heather and Mary, so glad you both could join us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Claire, for the introduction. And Mary, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us um, today. For anyone who hasn't seen the series, I would like to um, start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the New York Times Presents series and what types of topics you typically cover. Yeah, thank you both for having me on today. It's my pleasure to join you for this conversation. Uh, The New York Times Presents is an anthology documentary series that the New York Times Presents with Left Right, a production company for FX and Hulu. And, um, you know, an anthology documentary series is sort of a fancy way of saying that um, we look to produce distinct films um, where the form of each suits the content. We look to, you know, create um, films that examine and reveal and offer penetrating insight into the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I think we've found, uh, you know, that we're particularly interested in applying really um, rigorous New York Times journalism to topics that might have been overlooked or trivialized as well, which I think was almost inarguably the case um, with Britney Spears. And we just announced yesterday that the New York Times Presents was um, extended, um, so you can look for us to uh, deliver more documentaries your way and find them on FX and Hulu. Oh, that's terrific. And I also want to congratulate you on the Emmy nominations for Framing Britney Spears. It's such a compelling documentary, and I'm so glad it's being recognized. And um, since it's, you know, not possible to interview everyone involved here today, I wanted to give you the opportunity to acknowledge your teammates. That's that's very um it's wonderful that you asked that right at the top. I deeply appreciate it. I'm sure they, they do, too. I, you know, film is such a truly a collaborative effort, film and television. Right? It is rarely, if ever, made by one or two individuals. Uh, you know, our colleagues who have worked previously primarily in print are always shocked at how many people it takes to do something uh, in film and television. So, um 
I would like to have some incredible colleagues who edited this film. That means, you know, editing it on the Avids. Um, and really, I think, did a lot of what you might call the writing, and that you're making decisions about which language to include and which order and which image to place that language to. Jeff O'Brien and Pierre Tacal were the brilliant editors who took the lead. In that area, they were supported by a um, what we call a story or post-producer, Liz Hodes, who also combed through, you know, hundreds of hours of archival footage, um, you know, dozens of hours of interviews, um, and worked tirelessly to imagine and reimagine the ways in which we would be structuring this film and building um, building our arguments, if you will, or presenting the information. Um, she was supported by an incredible archival producer, Johanna Schiller, whose job it was to, I, you know, find this footage that had never been seen before or hadn't been seen in a very long time, um, and also to ultimately, you know, engage in these sort of negotiations and conversations around what footage we could use. Um, it's a big job, and it's an important job in a film like this. Um, and then we have, you know, executives who work with us at the New York Times. Uh, my colleague Jason Stallman um, provides brilliant editorial oversight and ensures that our work meets New York Times editorial standards. Um, keeps us laughing as well. And, you know, there's all sorts of folks who work as assistant editors and production assistants and production managers who help make sure that we can film in the middle of a pandemic and that the, we have the right cameras. There's a brilliant DP, Emily Toper, who worked with us in Los Angeles. Um, we we made this film with Samantha Stark, who directed the film, and with Liz Day, who uh, originated the idea for the film and conducted the original reporting along with Samantha, and then they were supported by their associate producer, Bellamy Ben Cosme. And I didn't even mention everyone. It's a big team. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that you, you know, gave a shout-out to, to at least um... – a large number of them. Um, and so for anyone who hasn't seen this documentary, could you just tell us a little bit about what it's about? Sure. So Framing Britney Spears um, looks at the life of Britney Spears, and it investigates and scrutinizes the conservatorship that she's lived under for the last 13 years. Um, we open the film, you know, with an understanding that she that she is in a conservatorship and that it's a controversial arrangement. And very quickly, you know, for early years, of course, Brittany performing as really, I think, presented with an extraordinary amount of talent at a very early age. And it was very important to us that we begin the film um, towards her beginning um, rather than, you know, simply spending 90 minutes or, you know, 70 minutes on the conservatorship. We really believed that it was through sort of understanding all that she, not all that she experienced, but by communicating some sense of what she experienced and some sense of also how the culture responded to her and the ways in which the culture treated her. Uh, we believe that, you know, bringing an understanding of all of that to these moments in her life that have become infamous and iconic, um, including what the so-called umbrella incident, Brittany shaved her head, we really felt that you, again, would need to understand what had preceded it in order to approach those moments with um, new understanding, new empathy, new sympathy, new perspective. 
Um, and then we, of course, you know, investigate the conservatorship and tell the story as best we could of its inception um, and, you know, its sort of progression through time and where we are now. Yeah, I think the film is incredibly um, successful at creating empathy for Brittany and shining a new light on these incidents and and I think it helps people reevaluate um the way certain things were perceived many years ago versus how they're perceived now. Um, so I, I think you guys just did a wonderful job. And could you talk a little bit about the steps to get this project greenlit? Sure. We have a, you know, we're a, we're a team um, that produces the New York Times Presents, and we, on a you know weekly basis, sit around and discuss new ideas, pitch each other on new ideas. And one week, Liz Day um, showed up in our virtual uh, conference <laughs> with a pitch saying, what if we did um, uh, OJ Made in America, but for Britney Spears? And I thought that was a really brilliant pitch, both a brilliant way of framing the pitch and the, the core concept was um, really smart and appealing. Um, and to me, what that pitch said was, you know, OJ Made in America, absolutely brilliant series, which, um, you know, gives its subject matter a great deal of space, takes its subject matter very seriously, and critically begins its storytelling decades before O.J. is on trial. And I think, you know, in so doing, uh, it means that when you, as a viewer, watch the trial and incident or incidents in which you might have some memories of, memories of, you're bringing fresh perspective you're bringing probably new empathies and new sympathies to your experience of what you knew. So in Liz's pitch, I heard that, that we had the potential to do that here, to begin our storytelling decades before these infamous incidents to bring a rigorous approach to subject matter that others had trivialized. Um, uh, so I threw my support behind it and um, enlisted a colleague, Laura Mofta, to do some initial research. Um, we learned, at that point, we learned a great deal more about the conservatorship. We learned a great deal more about um, Brittany's really, you know, ardent and active fan base. And, you know, also we we spoke with some of the paparazzi who had covered Brittany um, and came to understand that there was really you know, that the present was rife with controversy um, and that her fans were bringing, I think, a really compelling perspective um, to Brittany's earlier life as well and that many of them were bringing some degree of contrition themselves to this, to her, their understanding of her, some sense that perhaps they had consumed images of her too voraciously. All of this we thought was really, really compelling. Um we also, I will say, were met with some skepticism at this point. There was a lot. There was a suggestion that we would never really get very close to Brittany, that others had tried, and and that it was, you know, a sort of impossible effort. Um, and there was also, you know, to some extent, there was um, a suggestion that Brittany, uh, that the conservatorship was very functional and functional for Brittany, and that she um, largely supported it. 
But we moved ahead anyway, and we brought the idea once we had done a bit more research to our fabulous partners at FX and Hulu. They saw the potential almost immediately and greenlit it on their end, which was fabulous. And then we were able to really dig in, and we attached Samantha Stark as the director, um, and she brought her brilliant vision to it too. I think, you know, Samantha um, understood very quickly that it would be important to approach many of the women who had surrounded executive to her colleagues and in part she felt it was important to do so because when she absorbed so much of the media that had been made about Brittany she was quite quite struck by um, how infrequently you heard from the women who surrounded her and she wanted relationships um, with the fans and you know was able to I think and how important their chronicling their efforts would be um, to film. Liz Day, alongside Samantha and Mel, they created a spreadsheet with, um, you know, it was really I'm afraid we, I believe you may be cutting out a little bit. Claire, is that happening on your end? Yes, I was just about to say something about it as well. It, it's uh, perhaps the last two or three sentences started to break up a little bit, Mary. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, well, I think I said that Samantha came to this with a you know a brilliant idea to approach the women in Brittany's life because when she had absorbed the material that was made, that had been produced about Brittany previously. She was struck by how infrequently you heard from the women around her, and she wanted to know what those women would say. She approached those women, and they, of course, uh, joined the team and and created a spreadsheet with over 1,000 names on it, and this was um, an effort to take a complete inventory of the makeup artists and the dancers and the assistants and, you know, everyone they could identify who had worked um, or come close to Brittany. And they very methodically began to work their way through that list and, um, you know, get as close to, as they could to um, to the truth. Yeah. Well, that's amazing that you had such an extensive list. When I listened to your team speak at an event the IDA did, um, you mentioned that you avoided people who wanted to tell you what Brittany was thinking when she did this or that. And I thought that was a you know great decision. Um, could you talk a little bit about the dilemma of not being able to reach Brittany herself in order to give her the opportunity to tell her own story? Sure, we did try. Um, as we make clear at the end of the film, we certainly tried to bring Brittany's voice into the film. Um, we wanted to sit with her. Of course, we wanted her interview. We still want her interview. We still want her to tell her story. Um we don't know, as we make clear at the end of the film, we don't know if she received our request, um, such as, you know, the nature of the conservatorship. Um, but because we we didn't have her, we wanted to make sure we felt the responsible thing as journalists, and, and Samantha really took the lead in, you know, reinforcing and reinforcing this. Um, we believed that we shouldn't let others speak for her. So that meant that, if we were interviewing someone and they said, I think Brittany might have felt, for example, sad at this time, we wouldn't include that. But if they said, 
when I was looking at her, I felt sad. We could include that, right? But we wanted to make certain that we weren't, it just didn't feel like responsible or accurate journalism if we were um, letting others um, provide some sense of what she might be experiencing herself. Yeah, and I do, I love that you listed the people in the end credits that declined to be interviewed. I thought that was really um, smart. And um, could you talk a little bit about the way the archival footage that you uncovered helped with the storytelling? I think it's a really powerful um, and effective part of the film. Um, You know, when I saw the first assembly of the cut, it opened with this clip of um, from Family Feud in which the contestants are asked um, name something that Britney Spears has lost in the last year, I think. And, you know, everyone's smart. They list her hair, her sanity, her children. And that clip was, ended up moving towards the middle of the film. It's no longer the beginning, but when I saw that, I, I was... I was quite struck. I was deeply affected by it. And I think it, it says so much, including that in that moment in time, um, the dominant approach to Brittany was quite cruel. And that we all, most of us, were really quite cruel in our um, interpretation and um, uh, judgment, perhaps. Uh, and one saw also in that clip just how prevalent that was. Um, I think that says that in a way that's, you know, more powerful than if you had an interview subject saying, you know, we we were too harsh in our judgment, right? It's showing and not telling. Um, you know, we also have another, there's many clips that I will never forget, including towards the beginning of the film, you see Brittany appear on Star Search, the young girl. She presents, I think, with this incredible voice. And she, after she performs, the host, Ed McMahon, asks her um, if she has a boyfriend. He asks her something. I'm afraid you're cutting out again, Mary, at least on my end. I don't know if there's a space near you where you get better reception, but if there is, maybe you could try to move there and we'll just do our best meanwhile. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, let me see. Um, I'm sorry, it's usually not an issue. Is this any better? Uh, well, right now it seems okay. So yeah, let's give it a try. Okay, okay. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, That's okay. I think towards towards the beginning of the film, Brittany appears on Star Search, and you see her present with this extraordinary voice, this incredible talent at a very young age. She's a girl. And then afterwards, she is um, asked by Ed McMahon, the host. She has a boyfriend. And, you know, when I watch that clip, and every time they do, I'm struck by both that she was presenting with this extraordinary talent at a young age, and it makes her ascension into the, you know, the public sphere and, you know, into a position of the top star seem um, almost preordained or inevitable. Um, and then, you know, you see the ways in which the culture is represented by Ed McDonald in this moment with greeting her and meeting her in a way that is perhaps not sensitive or generous. And, you know, I, I look at that and I, I see, well, perhaps the collision between those two forces is almost inevitable, right? Not, not inevitable, but if you watch it, I, I, you know, it's certainly a place that my mind goes to. And in that way, I think 
you know, again, surely this is so much more powerful than having anyone tell you this and letting it really um, play and take up as much time and space as it as it as it needs. And as you were making the movie, what did you find the most surprising? Um, you know, I all of this archival material that we're mentioning, including these clips in which interviewers asked Brittany if her she was still a virgin, if her breasts were real. Um, I found them all quite shocking. Um, I think what's shocking is perhaps that they were so commonplace and that so many of us, myself included, probably just absorbed them without critiquing them. Uh, and, you know, absorb them and the the sort of manifold messages that they contain. Um, I also, you know, wasn't aware as someone who sort of grew up consuming Brittany as this, you know, top queen. um, I wasn't aware that she had, there was this narrative at the time that she was the sort of product of a machine that produced her. um, And I didn't understand the extent to which she had exerted control um, over her creative output and also, I think, really how incredible her voice is, <laughs> which you see at a very young age. And then I think when you, you know, when we were exploring the conservatorship, it was also really um, somewhat surprising to understand um, how successful, how much money she had made under the conservatorship um, and that that presents a bit of a paradox because, um, you know, the conservatorships are not supposed to you're not supposed to be in one if you can take care of yourself, but she was clearly capable of earning millions of dollars. All of that was yeah, so it, it certainly seems like a conflict of interest. <laughs> um, after the film came out, Brittany had the opportunity to address the court and speak for herself, and I was wondering how you feel about what she had to say. Sure. I mean, you know, journalists, we try not to um, lead with... We try not to... We try to report this in a manner that's neutral. Um, that said, I was shocked um, by watching her testimony in court. Um, my colleagues, Liz Day and Samantha Stark and Joe Coscarelli, had the day before published some really incredible reporting. Um, they had obtained confidential court records, and these court records showed behind closed doors Brittany had been saying that she wanted out of the conservatorship for years. But that hearing that you're referring to um, was the first time that she had publicly said that out of the open, and it really was um, stunning. Yeah, and I also heard that she had called 911 the day before to report that she was um, uh, that there was conservatorship abuse. Um, which I heard that later. Um, so many people have said that if Brittany were a man, she would never have ended up in a conservatorship. And I was wondering if you, you know, if you have a comment about that. Mm-hmm. Well, do do you have examples of men who are in conservatorships, pop stars? <laughs> well, no, I don't. I would have to say, um, as someone who didn't make the movie, I would agree with the statement. <laughs> If that takes you out of the hot seat, so yes. Um, and um, after this film came out, I mean, there just seems to be so much momentum. And recently, Ronan Farrow and Gia Tolentino, hopefully I'm saying the name correctly, wrote a lengthy article about Brittany 
And like your documentary, I also found it heartbreaking. And to me, one of the saddest things is that she was deemed mentally unwell for resisting separation from her young children, one of whom she was still breastfeeding. So, I mean, to me, that just seems, it's just, it's just, it's just wild. But it's just unfortunate and sad and and just, I don't know. I really don't have the words for it, obviously. So, um what what for you has been the most meaningful part of making the film? Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's been the most meaningful professional experience in my life, um, and it continues to grow in you know meaning. I think we're still um, experiencing the sort of impact of the film. Um, I think early on we were, I was really moved by the amount of public contrition that I saw expressed on social media. Um, I'd never seen anything like that before. It wasn't, it didn't strike me as defensive. You know, you didn't see, I didn't hear or see people saying on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok, you know, well, I never laughed at her or I didn't buy those magazines. It, it was almost uniform in that what, what I saw when people were commenting on the way in which they treated Brittany was apology, um, and not just amongst those folks who are public-facing or celebrities. Um, and, you know, I include myself in that. I think I was not as, um, I just, I shouldn't, I probably laughed at her when I shouldn't have, I can't remember a specific instance, but I think I wasn't critis- I wasn't critical of the dominant narrative. I might have absorbed it, you know, when I was much younger and thought, you know, well, that doesn't seem quite right, but, but then never publicly questioned it and maybe laughed. Um, so that, that so many people were um, bringing contrition to this um to Brittany and apologizing to Brittany for it was deeply, deeply, is deeply meaningful. Um, and then, you know, seeing the the public sort of engage in this conversation around the extent to which our culture may have been misogynistic in the 90s and the early aughts, um, I think that's really powerful and I think it brings with it just heightened awareness in the sense that and the hope that um, we won't repeat our mistakes, we'll be more sensitive um, to the language that we use and the conclusions that we reach um, perhaps too quickly. And, you know, of course, there was also (laughs) just one other moment. I'll share there have been many, but um, on uh, Pride, during Pride, there was a clip that made its way around social media and I don't actually know what city it was from, but it was an image of hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the street um, marching for pride, uh, full of joy, and I believe they were singing, oops, I did it again, everyone. <laughs> uh, I don't know that they were singing it because of the film, but it just felt like there was this incredible, you know, swelling of love and support and appreciation of Brittany and this music and it was joyful and it was abundant and it was out of the street and I certainly got a little teary watching. 
Yeah, the free Britney movement, I think, really has captivated a lot of us. And, um, I mean, it certainly looks like things are going in the direction where hopefully there'll be some pretty radical changes and hopefully she'll get out of this conservatorship. I, I saw just this morning some images she had released doing cartwheels after finally being able to hire her own lawyer. And... Um, I, it, you know, personally, uh, it seems like this film, you know, has the potential to be like a Thin Blue Line or a Blackfish, one of these documentaries that really not just leads to empathy for someone, but really leads to change in their life. So hopefully, hopefully that's what we'll be seeing in the future. Um, so you're both a director, an accomplished director and a showrunner. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you like best about both of these roles, and also what's the most challenging part of both of these roles? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Yes, I've worked as a director and a showrunner, and sometimes as both. And in nonfiction, you know, I often find that our roles and titles and our job descriptions aren't completely codified. So, um, what one does when one has a certain title on any project is a little bit different. Um, but, you know, in both functions, what one is trying to do is to provide um, you know, creative and editorial oversight and some manner of vision. Um, and also, I think critically in both roles, what one is trying to do is to, you know, um, facilitate collaboration, um, you know, foster and maintain um energy and focus and optimism and purpose amongst the people that you work with um, and to support them in the ways that they need support and to give them space um, when they don't need your support, too. <laughs> well, that's, um, I have to say, that's job. very I don't smart. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it sounds like you could give a master class in show running uh, based on what you just said. Um, early in your career, you worked at This American Life, which for anyone who doesn't know is a radio show. And I'm wondering what impact, if any, that had on your approach to show telling. I'm sorry, on storytelling. Um, they're incredible. Yes, very early in my career, I worked as a freelancer. I was uh, I brought in a couple of stories to the This American Life radio series and was partnered with some really master storytellers, master producers, Sarah Koenig, um, who, of course, went on to do the serial series, um, Change the World in Its Way, uh, Julie Snyder, um, who also worked on serial and essentially ran This American Life for years, um, and Nancy Updike, brilliant reporter and producer, and they taught me so much. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't with them for a very long time, but it was a very powerful experience. I mean, I think they taught me a great deal about interviewing um, and about the importance of asking, you know, letting your curiosity in an interview really, um, uh, you know, sort of shape the questions that you ask and not being shy in any way, you know, not being afraid to sort of ask a question that might feel a little bit uncomfortable. And this doesn't mean that you're looking to create discomfort amongst the person that you're interviewing, but more that usually people want to be asked that question that you might be a little bit afraid of asking um, because they probably want to talk about it and other people haven't necessarily asked them. And then I think also, you know, they tell me a great deal about interview approach and the importance of really um, encouraging people to tell uh, stories, 
you know, to describe um, to describe an important moment in their life as if they were someone so that they can see it. You know, I walked into the room and I saw a red carpet and a blue chair and I remember she was wearing a, you know, a blue jumpsuit and, you know, I remember the smell of bacon frying on the stove and um, and I think that that is a really, you know, powerful and effective technique um, both in radio and certainly in television too. Yeah, absolutely. What advice do you have for people who want to make documentaries? Uh, well, I think it's a wonderful time to be making documentaries. There's probably more interest and opportunity than there perhaps has ever been. Um, I think that I would encourage people who want to make documentaries to find people that they think they can learn from and to do everything that they can to be close to those people. Um, I think it's really the best graduate school working for and with people that you think are great at what they do is probably the best graduate school that exists. And I think a combination of doing that along with um, pursuing independent projects, you know, not just working for other people, but trying to generate your own ideas and trying to bring them from an idea all the way to fruition. I think that's really um, a great way to learn and to advance yourself as an artist and a maker and perhaps a journalist and, and professionally. I mean, I think it's also worth absorbing though that it is um, a, it's an industry that's largely built on freelance um, employment, and that, that that can be challenging at times, I think, especially when you're starting out, when you get to a certain point where you're probably working at a higher level and, you know, your salary is a little bit more, um, I think it's a little bit easier. But early on when you're working as a production assistant or as your producer, it's, it's hard. Yeah, definitely. And um, throughout this conversation, you've mentioned um, journalistic technique and so forth. And I was just wondering, did you um, study journalism or documentary or both before you got into this field? Or maybe I studied, neither. Uh, <laughs> I studied film at college. I went to Wesleyan, which I loved. And I loved the film program there where they teach you both the history, theory, and production, all three. Um, and I I concentrated in documentary um, and made a documentary there. I've always had a passion for nonfiction storytelling. I truly believe that truth is stranger than fiction. Um, early on, I was really passionate about you know, what some call verite filmmaking and went to work for the Maples um, and um, Steve Pennybaker and Chris Hedges and um, was really... Uh, you know, excited to have the opportunity to learn from them and their many colleagues. Um, and I have found my way to, um, you know, to work as a journalist of sorts, and I've been so lucky and so privileged to work alongside and learn from some of the world's best journalists. And, it, you know, I am still learning. I learn from them every day. And really learning from them is one of the, uh, one of my favorite parts of the job. Great. And um, I just want to say again, your accomplishments are really like too numerous to cover here, but they do include um, directing and producing a Sundance documentary and so forth. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us your website and social media handles for anyone who would like to follow your career. Oh, that's generous. Um, I I am on Twitter. Um, my handle is MK, like Mary Kate 
Robertson, and I have a website as well, and I try to keep it fairly current. Um, you know, the projects that I've been contributing to, and that is MaryRightNow.com. Super, and um, I just want to close by saying that I was filling in for uh, or guest hosting for Carol Dean, and if anyone wants to follow me, um, my social media handle is LensFilms, L-E-N-Z-F-I-L-M-Z, and um, if there's anything else that you want to add also before we go, I also want to give you the opportunity to do that. Thank you for the time and the thoughtful questions. All right. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And hopefully um, hopefully the audio is a little better than it sounded on my end. We'll see. But thanks again for taking time yeah. out of your schedule. And um, congratulations on the success of the documentary. And, um, you know, I'll be rooting for you for that Emmy. Thanks, Heather. All right. Yes, same Bye-bye. here. Mary, it was great having you. Thank you so much. And Heather... A wonderful interview as always. Both of you take good care. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>